I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Why, hello there, John. Hey, Todd. How are you today? Not bad at all. Now that Greg's not with us, we can uh, do whatever we want here. And instead of doing something that, uh, you know, that's of interest to Greg, I'm going to suggest we do something that is of especially intense interest to you because you had a direct involvement in this before you were on the NTSB board. In fact, we're talking yeah. about the September 20th, 1989 crash of uh, U.S. Airways Flight 5050-737-400 at LaGuardia Airport. Uh, short story is, during takeoff, it uh, could not take off, went off the end of the runway, uh, hit some lighting uh, equipment off the end of the runway, and ended up killing two passengers. And beyond what is in the report, this is a special show because there's going to be a lot of information that goes behind the scenes. Uh, the NTSB, which has a great website, doesn't have really good stuff on stuff from, let's say, 1989. In fact, they don't even have the accident report on their site right now. We had to go find it elsewhere. And unlike the other accidents where we talk all the time about the public docket, there is no public docket here. We've got something better than the public docket. We have an actual witness who was involved behind the scenes, in front of the scenes, and can tell us stories well beyond anything in the public docket. That's you, John. So uh, before we go into th those details, let me just give a very, very quick recap of what happened on this on this aircraft. This was a flight uh, by U.S. Air, which was flying the 737-400, which at the time was a fairly new aircraft. It had only been introduced to the world's airline fleet less than a year before. And in fact, Piedmont Airlines, which was an airline that was absorbed by U.S. Air, was the launch customer for this. So even though this aircraft had only a couple thousand hours on it, less than a year's worth of flying, this was an airline that had more experience than any other airline when it came to managing and flying the 737-400. But also, let's take you all back in time a bit. Uh, this was 1989, where the industry had been in the midst of a big sea change with respect to training flight crews to work with one another in the cockpit. We've talked about this before in previous shows, cockpit resource management, where the person flying and the person not flying have very specific roles to play, that the use of checklists and having the pilot not flying confirming that checklists were complete was a key part of cockpit resource management. 
as well as changing the relationship that is giving the person not flying, and especially the person who is of a lower uh, level of authority and lower level of experience, the confidence to speak up when things aren't going right or when things seem out of uh, out of phase a bit, to speak up to the to the captain in this case and suggest that something be changed. Now, this was a crew that was fairly experienced. The captain was a former U.S. Air Force pilot who had flown C-130s, a large four-engine transport, and had been with U.S. Air for a while. The first officer, although this person had only been hired about three months before, had about 3,000 hours, a commercial pilot. And one of the things that stood out looking at this action was that this was the first flight for the first officer that was not a supervised flight in the 737. And the first officer had also just come off the 39-day layoff. And that may, ha might have contributed to what went on. And I'll just go through very quickly with the sequence of events. The aircraft was uh, mistrimmed. That is, the rudder was trimmed significantly to the left, and it should not have had any trim whatsoever. This was not caught during the pre-flight checklist even though the cockpit voice recorder clearly had one of the pilots saying, you know, take off checklist complete, that item was not executed. And once the aircraft did start taking off, uh, there was a problem with directional control of the aircraft. And the captain tried to use the tiller, that is the device that turns the nose wheel to correct the drift of the aircraft rather than using the proper procedure for that. And also the pilot was using, uh, after they had a problem, and they realized they couldn't take off, the captain executed a rejected takeoff procedure, part of which is to maximize braking immediately. But the captain was trying to use differential braking to straighten the aircraft on the runway, and as a result, didn't execute full braking authority on the aircraft. The aircraft ended up going off the end of the runway and hitting some uh, lighting stands off the end of the runway over the bay. And although the aircraft was precariously over the water, the aircraft didn't sink. Although, unfortunately, uh, striking those uh, lighting stands did cause damage to the cabin, killed two of the passengers. Now, at this point, I think it's important to add a couple more things to this. This happened in New York. This happened late in the evening. But New York is also the number one place, in my opinion, the English-speaking world for media. You have all the major... Uh, broadcast news organizations there, all the major publishers, all the major anything with media in New York. Plus, in the late 1980s, there was an active set of local newspapers, both in New York City and surrounding areas, which were fighting for uh, circulation, fighting for readers. And having an accident like this, a fatal accident in New York City, this was a huge attractant to all kinds of media attention. And this is where, John, you can give some insight into this. Uh, you were a, a, a head mechanic, chief mechanic, when it came to working with the NTSB in this accident. So you were called in almost immediately. And by the following day, you were there. You were there before the NTSB, in fact. And we're on the ground seeing what was happening. So just give us an idea. What kind of, outside of the, the accident itself, what kind of external things that were going on that was making it difficult for you and the NTSB to do their jobs? Well... You're right, Todd. I, it was New York. I live in Boston. Uh, when this happened, it was just a quick trip down. It was late in the day, so there was no more uh, flights. So it was just jump in a car and drive three and a half hours, and you're there. 
So when I got there, it was still nighttime, um, but the the media frenzy was unbelievable. It it was by a factor of probably ten of anything I've ever seen before up to that point, and even after that point. It, I mean, it was unbelievable. By morning, they had pictures of the flight crew, uh, and admittedly, one of the pictures wasn't that great, but it was enough to, that if you saw somebody, you would you would uh, probably recognize them, and. Uh, that drove the crew out because after the accident, the crew had been there at the airport. And finally, just around the time I arrived, they were trying to get the crew the hell out of there. And uh, But the press was just unrelenting. Like I said, I've never seen it so bad. They were just, just in the way of everything. And including, you know, because uh, LaGuardia is surrounded by water, they, they had them out there on, on, you know, there was one or two that tried to get out there by boat. Uh, they were on Rikers Island taking pictures from there. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Never seen anything like it, a feeding frenzy that that uh, would exceeded all of this. And it gets, it gets, uh, it gets quite interesting. Trying to dodge the press and, and with, with little success. So finally, you know, uh, the Alpha reps had to come from Pittsburgh, and they weren't getting there anytime soon. That's about a 10-hour ride. So they were waiting for the airplanes in the morning, and, and somebody got them the heck out of there and got them into a hotel room, which really wasn't that far away, but it wasn't in their name, so nobody could get them. Now, let me roll back a little bit just for the audience's sake. Alpha is the Airline Pilots Association, which is a union representing airline pilots. And typically after an event like this, they are in there to make sure that the rights of the pilots are not being violated and that the pilots have whatever support is necessary to deal with the accident investigation. In this case, it was very practical stuff. They needed to have some peace of mind and peace and quiet. And they had to get them away from all the press. And this was pre-9-11. So how stiff, how strict was airport security? I mean... Was it hard for somebody to just walk onto the, the airport into the areas where the airplane was being invest was being analyzed and, and look at stuff, or was it difficult? No, today it's 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 much much more diff difficult. But in those days, uh, most airports had security, but it was more like a sieve. Uh, you know, it wasn't uh, police security; it was contract security, and so it really wasn't that strong. So they were able to get through. Many of them knew the ins and outs, uh, and maybe even knew some of the people knew who they were, and and just sort of let it happen. But in any event, they they had a lot of uh, access in the early days. In fact, on the first full day, by the by the afternoon of the first full day of the investigation, we had many many New York Port Authority police and New York City police and detectives on the scene. Never, never had seen that until TWA 800 when the FBI took over so much. But in, in, in 1989, I've never seen an accident that had the police presence that they had with this one, mostly driven by the press. I mean, like you said, the, the number of newspapers that were there. Uh, I mean, you couldn't move without getting a camera stuck in your face if they figured you were part of the investigation. Do you have any comment? Can you tell me anything about it? I mean, it was brutal. Most of us stayed on the other side of, of by the wreck to get away from the press once the, the police put a good good fence around us. 
we would just stay on that side of it because it was just just unbelievable uh, on the public side by then. Yeah. It was really bad. So. so they were pretty aggressive during the on-site investigation in and around LaGuardia. How many times or if ever do you think the press kind of stepped over the line with their aggressiveness in getting at the story? Oh, man. Well, I'll tell you one story that never makes the press. On the first two days of the investigation, the NTSB was chiding all of us from industry that were part of the investigation about leaking. And it was it was actually accusatory. Somebody in this room is leaking. And, you know, I knew it wasn't me. I knew it wasn't any of my mechanics that I had with me. But you look around the room, there's a lot of players in there. And you just say, I wonder who is leaking, because the press was having uh, really good reporting. Some of the stations, really good reporting. So on the afternoon of the second day, uh, one somebody in the group, in the well, let me back up. In the afternoons, you have gatherings to talk about what you've discovered during that day's investigation. So we have everybody comes to the room and there's a lot of discussions about what we did and what we were doing, preparing for the evening meeting when we all get a stand up from everybody. So there's a lot of crosstalk. And somewhere along the line, and I forget who, one of the one of the guys that was there walked over to the windows. Now we've been in this conference room, which was on the second floor of the hotel with the curtains drawn since the beginning. He went over and he opened the curtains. And here we have on an overhang, like I said, we're in the second floor. So there's a bit of a roof over something in the hotel on the lower level. And out here we have two guys standing with a suction mic against the glass and a recording devices or, or equipment sitting on the, on, the, on the floor at their feet. And they're recording everything that we're talking about in the room. So we suddenly found our leak, but it wasn't, thankfully, it wasn't one of our people. Right, but that's the level of intensity that was going on at this event. It was really unprecedented for me. This wasn't just a local story, though, because of the national news outlets there. This was like a national story. It wasn't being picked up like uh, by television and newspapers across the country. It was picked up by everybody around the world because of of, of the the hype. Of my my words now the hype that they were generating around the missing pilots and they've run away and where have they gone? And, you know, by this time we all knew where they were because Alpha come forward and said, you know, we, we, we want to come tell us where to go. We got, we need to hide them to get them out, get them in the car and get them out of here. We're not going to bring them back here. So ultimately they figured out what they were going to do when the pilots went off in, uh, with the FAA and the NTSB and did whatever they had to do. Now, I want to ask you something about not your time at the NTSB, which came years after this, but the things that were in existence in 19, not ex in existence in 1989, that came into existence later. But one of the things that you pushed was to have a, a formal uh, process by which passengers are taken care of or overseen by the NTSB, that that was part of their responsibility to make sure that whatever was uh, necessary for their, their aid immediately is there. None of that was there in 1989. So from your observation, how good or how bad or how ugly was uh, how the uh, passengers were being treated after this? Oh, the passengers weren't too bad, but the families of the people who perished were, were not treated very well at all. So, and I I saw that firsthand. In fact, in one of the accidents I worked, 
I sat there quietly while, while some people made some bad decisions and and I knew they were bad and I didn't open my mouth. I'd like to have that one back again because I would have raised holy hell, but I didn't at the time. But uh, it was in night. It was after TWA that uh, President Clinton uh, signed an executive order that created a, a Family Assistance Act at the NTSB. And I was very vocal inside the tent on that because I saw firsthand, I participated firsthand in how um, the families were ignored. So we finally gave them some priority in, uh, and that made the press unhappy because basically the information flow that you want to report on the evening news wasn't ready until around six o'clock at night. And they wanted the news on the news for six o'clock at night. And we were pushing it to seven, seven thirty, and even eight o'clock, which is cutting into prime time viewing, which cuts into their advertising revenue. So there was a big pushback from the press about us going late. But uh, I think I had an early, I'm trying to remember the sequence of events. I can't remember without going back looking it up. But one of the one of the first accidents that I did after that executive order was signed was I made sure that that I went to the families and gave them everything that I was going to say on the evening news so they heard it first. And that moved that that meeting quite late. And boy, the press press pushed on me pretty hard to get get in there early, but I wasn't going to do it. You know, I thought the families deserved to hear it from the NTSB first. And essentially, we all took that same, the five board members at the time, of which I was one, uh, all took that same approach, that the family members need to hear it from the NTSB. Accurate information, no speculation, and where we are at that moment in time. Now, taking so, people back in, in time a little bit for a different reason, this is the year 1989. It happened to be a year that had not one, but several major accidents involving aircraft in the U.S. And there was a particularly uh, um, you know, noteworthy one earlier in the year. That was the uh, Sioux City event with the DC-10. That uh, was, of course, a national news and, and raised up the temperature with respect to, is there something wrong with aviation safety? What's going on with all this? So that was a precursor to what happened in, in uh, September 20th, in that this is still fresh in the media's minds. And I'm just speculating here. Maybe uh, some of them were thinking, hey, this could be a pattern. This could be something where I can be, I don't know, break some sort of pattern out into the open saying, hey, I discovered this. So part of their zeal, enthusiasm might be, hey, I want to be the next Woodward and Bernstein of aviation safety. Again, this is me speaking my opinion. And at that Thank time, right. I, I was still in graduate school. I was heavily involved in studying aviation safety. And this accident was one of the ones that myself and uh, my professor were looking at closely. So there was a, a wide area of, well, there was a lot of folks interested in aviation safety for various reasons. The media had their reasons. The academic world had their reasons. And also, the industry was also in transition. Um, we've talked about cockpit resource management in the past, and it was something that was ruling out in the industry at that time, but it was not universal. And in fact, correct me if I'm wrong, neither pilot had any sort of training in this and I'm not sure, did the U.S. Air have a training program in place or beginning, and they just hadn't, hadn't rolled it out to everybody yet? What was the situation with cockpit resource management? 
actually USA was one of the leaders in CRM. And because of that, and my interface with, with Alpha and other areas within the airline, uh, that resulted in me, I can still remember vividly, sitting there listening to them talking about CRM about this time, but it was after this accident. And I, I said to uh, one of the lead uh, people of, the, of Alpha, I said, you know what, that can work in maintenance. And uh, we called it MRM. And I went back to US Air and proposed that we start an MRM program, which they agreed to. So here we, here we were early in 1990, and we were starting a maintenance resource management program at US Air, and nobody else had it. Uh, but being the way aviation is with the sharing of knowledge, we quickly had it up and running in a similar fashion at uh, United, Northwest, uh, Continental. Uh, but they weren't the same programs, but they were all heading in the same direction. Now, in this particular accident, uh, one of the things that jumped out at me is a thing that you're always emphasizing. Uh, do a good pre-flight. Do a good set of checklists. Now, the cockpit uh, voice recorder only went to 30 minutes, so they didn't record everything that was in the cockpit. But one of the things that you were pointing out to me before the show, this aircraft and this crew had flown in earlier in the day. And they were trying to get the aircraft out and weather issues and all that sort of thing. But the pilots who were around for several hours didn't get a chance to go get rest at the hotel or whatever. They were in and out of the cockpit, in and out of the aircraft, uh, you know, trying to get information and whatnot. They basically had a whole lot of time and energy spent trying to get off um, and flying again. And that might have affected the quality of their pre-flight. And you know, what can you speak to about that from what you saw beyond just what was in the uh, report here. Right. So the airplane had come in earlier that, that day from Charlotte, and it was a hurricane hanging off the off the east coast of the country. And so they the airplane got in on a bumpy ride, but then it got stuck. You know, LaGuardia being what it is, once the weather hits, the traffic backs up. And the longer the traffic was backed up, the worse the weather got. So they, you know, there was no getting off for a long time. And then as the flight got canceled, but the crew didn't leave, the company wanted to get the airplane out of there. So they were, they were hanging around. And they sat in the back of the airplane in the passenger seats for a while. They were inside operations trying to find out what's going on and nobody had any good information. So they were in and out all over the place, in the terminal, you know, just really frustrated uh, and killing time until finally the weather broke some and they had the window to get it out of there. And since the terminal was full of passengers that got stuck because their flights all got delayed or canceled, uh, they reinstated this flight to Charlotte. And since it was late and there was going to be no connections in Charlotte, the only passengers that they really took were the passengers going to Charlotte was their destination. So notice the airplane was only half full. And uh, and they were able to get out late that night, and then the disaster struck. So the Ella, the uh, right of trim was deferred full left, full all the way left. All right, so an electric trim switch to drive uh, drives the motor to uh, set the trim. So that that was a mistake the crew made. They went down that checklist, Bing, Bing, Bing. They probably had every item before it was okay, and they missed it. And they missed it. And I, I, as you said, I hop on this all the time. 
I mean, you've got to pay attention. There were many, many, many people that were on and off that airplane. Fuel is a few times, uh, uh, cleaning people, the catering people. God knows uh, who touched it. They had people sitting in the cockpit just blown, shooting the baloney with the crew when there was nothing to do. It was common for people that sat in the jump seat to put their feet up on the pedestal, which could have hit the switch uh, because it had a it had an elevated turn on it. So if you put rested your foot on the on the uh, pedestal, which had a lip, you could actually put your foot on the switch and move it one way or the other, depending if it was your left foot or your right foot that you put up. So one of the fixes that Boeing came up with was they changed the knob so you couldn't do that anymore. And then the, in later production, they raised the footrest part of it where you would rest your foot up there so further uh, as a further safeguard. So that, that cured that part of the problem. Looking at the findings, which is toward the uh, end of the uh, report, there are a couple of things that jumped out at me that looked like they could have been uh, checklist related. One of which is the rudder trim, we mentioned that. And it also says in the fourth finding, captain could have, uh, well, not the, the fifth one rather, the captain did not use the auto brake system during the takeoff roll as recommended by Boeing and US Air Management. Now, I don't know if that was a checklist item. I don't know if that was a required item, but it makes it sound as though uh, it was recommended, but not required. So uh, the airplane has auto brakes. And normally you set it for mild, medium, or, or severe uh, auto braking. And uh, he didn't have it set, if I remember right. Uh, but he was also, because the airplane was going down the runway, and it was wanting to turn left, and we actually saw tire marks on the runway where the airplane was coming down like a snake. And that was, in fact, that was our first clue that there was a control problem early on before we had the flight data recorder readout. And the uh, he was trying to use the brakes to pull the airplane back to keep it on the center line instead of going off into the weeds, which would have went if he if left alone. Now, remember, he's steering the airplane with the nose wheel, but the first officer is flying this airplane. So you've got split duties here that sometimes uh, can lead to confusion. You know, is the, is the first officer using the rudder pedals? Because the rudder pedal, pedals will also move the nose steering. A limited amount, but it will move them. So you know, it's not clear in those few seconds that we're talking about. It wasn't clear to either one of them what was going on. All they knew was the airplane wanted to go off to the left-hand uh, side, and they were struggling to keep it on. So if you're the captain now, you've got the airplane for to, to uh, abort to take off, but you've got an airplane going to the left, you naturally are going to use your brakes to keep the airplane going straight. I've seen that in other accidents that didn't have the rudder trim as a problem, but where something like a wind crosswind or something was forcing the airplane off, and uh, as long as you have the airspeed above 40 or 50 miles an hour, you have some rudder control, you can move the airplane over and help keep it on the on the center line of the runway, which is the most desirable place to be. Because if you're off in the mud, especially if it's been raining like this place was, you've got a hundred thousand pound fire truck trying to go through a field essentially of mud, uh, they might not get to you in time. So that, that's a those are some of the concerns that would run through the captain's head rather quickly, but he wanted to keep the airplane on the center line. And of course, he doesn't want to go off the end, but that particular runway only has got 7,000 feet, and it doesn't have a lot of overrun 
uh, because it was what we call a grandfathered runway. You know, as the rules got, got more uh, restrictive, when you want to build a new runway, you have to have cleared surfaces on either end of it for X number of feet. You need 750 feet on each side. So the rules got more restrictive, but this airport uh, was has been around since, the, I think, the 20s. And uh, they were grandfathered in, so they didn't have the uh, have to comply with those. Nor did they really have the ability to comply with them because there was just no room. Now, in addition to all the other things that were going on, it looks like the first officer also accidentally disengaged the auto throttle. So uh, he was manually adjusting the throttles, and it says here in the findings that uh, he delayed in advancing them and at a slightly lower thrust, which means that. Uh, it, lengthening the airplane's uh, roll on the runway. So you had a whole bunch of things working against them. And the runway was wet. And also the unspecified effect that fatigue might have had, because like you said, they had an unusual day with a lot of uh, non-standard things going on and possibly some frustration with the delays. And on top of that, you have this uh, fairly inexperienced first officer who had just come off of a 39-day break from flying. And uh, again, it didn't go into detail as to what effect that, that would have, but common sense would sort of imply that if this could, were a first officer who was flying frequently and had his previous flight the day or two before, he might be in a different state of mind and different understanding of the airplane systems than he would have after a 39-day layoff. Now, that's true. He, he was at a, a very, very much a disadvantage given the level of experience he had and the captain was also at a disadvantage with fatigue and, and trying to keep the airplane on the runway and maybe not recognizing uh, some of the other problems that started to build up quick enough. And uh, add to uh, all this, and again, like many accidents, many things lead to an accident. One or more of them, if you take them away, this accident might not have happened. Another thing that happened that if you take that away, it would have might have been a different result. The rejected takeoff speed that was calculated was 125. That is, once you reach 125, you're not going to have enough room to stop safely on the runway. And depending on the situation, the decision might be, no matter how bad it looks, if taking off is better than going off the end of the runway, you keep taking off. The rejected takeoff wasn't initiated until 130 knots. So again, the airplane was further down the runway, higher speed, higher energy, takes more effort to come to a, a safe stop, which they didn't do. And neither pilot was uh, looking at the indicated airspeed, which again is the key. You calculate the rejected takeoff distance for a small airplane like what I fly, it doesn't really matter because the runway is so long, uh, I don't have an RTO speed that I'm looking for. But on a bigger airplane, on a relatively short runway, it's absolutely important that you know what that speed is. Because again, if you're beyond that speed, you may not be able to stop safely on the runway. Right, and that's the whole purpose of it, and you fly. And I'm sure uh, even without the call out, he probably was feeling the airplane was going fast because the runways in LaGuardia are not exactly silky smooth. And the airplane pulling to the left, he, he, he had too many unknowns. And he probably felt that it's better to stay on the ground than to get in the air with, with something I don't understand. So it, uh, I mean, they were in a difficult place and, and basically their own doing with, the, with not doing a full checklist uh, at the gate and then doing the, 
pre-takeoff checklist out on the end of the runway. So I want to interrupt here and say that there's another aspect of this where you have information well beyond the public docket and the accident report. That is, you actually had an ongoing relationship with one of the pilots years after this. So what can you say about you know the lessons learned or how it affected his career or how he dealt with any other side effects of having been through this experience? Well, for whatever reason, the first officer uh, later on, not on scene, but afterwards, uh, gravitated towards me. He had many, many, many mechanical questions about the airplane, what it did. And uh, it actually turned him, he turned into a, a very aggressive uh, safety advocate for the airline. Uh, he really dug into it. So it had a profound effect upon him, uh, on him going forward. And, you know, I hadn't thought about this before, but you know what? That, that might be a, a bit similar to what my attitude towards accidents has been. Because as a young man, I participated in an accident and I pulled, uh, uh, it was a rescue turned into a, a no survivors and just recovery of whoever and whatever was on the airplane. And uh, that had an effect on me. I was a 16 year old kid when I did that and I never forgot it. And it, it, it has impacted my attitude in life towards uh, safety. So, and it did the same for him. Now, fortunately, uh, the sensibilities and the knowledge about the effect of accidents, psychological effects have progressed greatly since the 1960s and in this case, the 1980s. So the kinds of experiences, uh, again, these are tragic and upsetting experience for first responders, for the people involved, for the people who are victims. But there are more resources out there, some of which are uh, formally uh, given out by the airlines and, and formally uh, arranged by other organizations that didn't exist in the past. So all this is a good thing. But again, it came at a cost. That is, there had to be these tragedies first before there was an understanding that there had to be efforts made to deal not just with the mechanics of why this particular aircraft went off the end of the runway, but with the whole host of things that are around this. Uh, like what you were saying earlier about the media. The media is not going to be behaving like they did in 1989. In some cases better, in some cases worse. But I think industry-wide, there's a much better understanding of the fact that the media, both traditional and new media, is a reality. And it has to be looked at and guarded against to keep the, uh, uh, the accident investigation as separate from outside influences as possible. And also for the people in the business, to understand that you just have to ignore some of the stuff that's out there uh, from the poor reporting by traditional uh, reporting uh, channels and the flat out conspiracy theories that come up around almost every major accident. Again, I'm on a soapbox here, but uh, one of the reasons we do these, uh, these shows is not just to talk about the nuts and bolts, but the other more global issues around this. So I got, I got an interesting aside from all this. Right, so right after the accident, many of the passengers got out of the airplane and onto the wing. And one of the passengers went into the water and swam over uh, to land and disappeared. Uh, we thought he drowned, or the police thought he drowned. They had boats out there looking for the next day and a half. Some of the passengers in the water, were in the water. They drifted underneath. Uh, the runway is, part of that runway is on a pier. So they drifted underneath that. They had the, you know, the passengers themselves had to bring them all back in the flight crew to bring them back to the airplane. 
to, to uh, the relatively safety of the wing of the airplane. And uh, and then they were rescued off of there and gone in. And like I said, there was a day and a half search for the uh, the swimmer, whoever that person happened to be. And then we finally get to, to uh, get the passenger belongings out of the airplane. So it's the, the second day after the accident, we're getting uh, the passenger belongings out of, of course, the NTSB wants to see the flight crew belongings because in the past they've been able to find drug paraphernalia and, and other items that, that uh, could impeach the crew. So the NTSB wanted to see all that. Uh, but the police found, or the, first the baggage people found, a bag containing five pounds of pure cocaine, if I remember right. It was controlled substance anyway. And uh, and then they went to the, the cab pool and they found the cab driver who picked up this guy soaking wet, drove him about half a mile away, and he just threw money at the guy, he got out of the cab and disappeared down the street. And I'm sure he got into another cab and went some other place and, and maybe done that a couple of times to cover his trail. Uh, but they was transporting a controlled substance. And that goes to the security issue that you talked to in the very beginning about how different it was back then compared to what it is today. Boy, I don't think I saw the thing about the five pounds of uh, Coke in the accident report. Uh, no, that was, uh, you had to be there. <laughs> the, you had to be there. Well, uh, my apologies to the audience members who were expecting more of a hardcore, you know, purely scientific and engineering and maintenance oriented uh, uh, piece on this show. But again, we brought this up because this was a bit of a historical event in the time frame it took, a unique combination of experiences that you had and relationship you had with this that can shed insight as to what goes on in an accident and what are the issues that have nothing to do with technology but has to be dealt with now and in the future. So uh, my next to last word, if I can come up with one better than what you've been saying, is that, uh, again, these are accidents which even decades later, can shed light as to how things have changed and how things should uh, be changed even more to prevent something like this from happening in the future. Obviously, cockpit resource management is something that's industry-wide that's been put into place. That's been very, very helpful. And the relationship that the NTSB now has with victims' families is, is rock solid compared to 1989. So the kind of abuses that happened in the past won't happen again. Other things like the media, well, that's still a, a work in progress. Yeah, no comment. <laughs> so I'll I'll go into what I always say. I mean, this year, this accident is a perfect example of it. When you come up to the airport, you need to do some pre-planning. All right, and in an airline environment, most of the pre-planning is done by somebody in the in the within the bowels of the company. They do that job regularly, and the crew only has to look at it and accept it. Uh, but the pre-flight's different. You need to do a good walk around, whether you're an airline person or flying a little Cessna 140 or 150. You know, a good pre-flight. Touch your airplane if you can. Right? When you get in the cockpit, do a thorough check. Check your flight controls and look at them. I mean, uh, we've had a number of accidents over the years where they just pull the oak back and go, yep, it's working. Turn it, never see that it's doing the same, turning in the directions you want it to, 
to go. All right. And after you get in the air, put that head of yours on a swivel, especially today. Now, Greg, the last time we, we talked with Greg, he said, I think it was 135 student accidents with flight instructors on the airplane. That's a, a and then that's like in a year, less than a year. So that's a, that's a, a big number. So all of us pilots are out there, real pilots that have their, their privates or above, put that, all pilots actually, put that head on a swivel, look around because you don't know what the other guy is doing. You don't know what the other person can see. So pay attention out there. It's hazardous. And with that, please, please fly safely. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.